our study is in the book of 1 Corinthians. So let's take our Bibles and turn to chapter 3. The two books that uh, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, uh, if we're going to be kind of honest and blunt this morning, are a little disheartening. Um, They're really just kind of somber because you see the problem that is in Corinth, you see all the uh, infection that was in that church, and we see Paul trying to write and, and solve it, or write and address it and confront it. Um, but there were so many issues in Corinth, really unlike any church other than maybe Laodicea, um, that Paul has to write these very long letters to the church, and we think there's actually a third letter that we don't have um, that addresses all these problems and tries to, uh, to go after what was going on. A lot of internal issues... These were affecting their ability to have a ministry outside the church because anytime there's an internal problem in a church, it's going to affect the external ministry. Um, And Corinth really had that problem. Now, you know, it's kind of hard to to lead and say these are discouraging books, but they're important books for us because they highlight the problems that can happen when pride infiltrates the body, when it starts to affect the unity of the church, and it shows us that if we become, at any point, self-centered, self-focused, or, or allowing pride to strongly influence us, and pride will always strongly influence us, that it, it really becomes a major crisis for the church. And it starts to affect the ministry that we have, not only as a church, but as individuals. Now, a lot of issues in Corinth, they were fighting about uh, weird things like who had been baptized by who, and was that better because you got baptized by Paul and you got baptized by Apollos? And they were struggling with issues like um, whether we can get divorced, how worldly we can be, who has the better spiritual gifts. I mean, it really is a mess that's going on, especially in 1 Corinthians. And Paul says in chapter 13, which we know very well, none of what you're doing is influenced by love. None, none of this is being driven by what God has called us to do, which is to love Him first, and to love each other as we love ourselves. And that was causing a huge lack of spiritual progression among the people. Corinth was not a church where the people were moving forward into maturity. It was a church that was regressing, stagnant, struggling, uh, having a difficulty. And Paul writes to them and says, that's not ideal, and it's not normal. Because you guys are debating spiritual gifts and who's more spiritual, but you're not acting according to the Holy Spirit. Because if you were, you would act differently. So he says, what's going on here is is not normal in any way. And he goes right after them. He talks about their lack of growth and their lack of maturity and how they were dealing with conflict. And when you compare a book like 1 and 2 Corinthians to Philippians, which was a healthy church where people trusted God and were living selflessly and were sacrificing, the contrast is very, very stark. So we want to just... Uh, attack this this morning. We will look at chapter 3 because this is something that will, will warn us. It's, it's kind of a, uh, a statement by the Holy Spirit to fervently guard against this because there are two things really, and let's say this at the outset, there are two things that will kill uh, our marriages, they'll kill our families, they'll kill our walk, they'll kill our witness, they'll kill any ministry we have. The two things that will do that our pride, and spiritual stagnation. If you want to regress, if you want to not grow, 
if you want to really cause problems uh, in the body of Christ, if you want to have conflict in your marriage, you want to knock it along with your kids, and you want to have a weak witness, then embrace pride and spiritual stagnation because they'll do the trick. They will be what drags us down and drags us away from the Lord. Now, pride's dangerous, and we've talked about it many times, because it carries the scent of hell. So the devil is always going to push that in our lives. He's always going to, to try to challenge us and, and stoke in our hearts that we need to be satisfied before anybody else does. That it's about me, it's about what I want, it's about my satisfaction. And pride is interesting because it's subtle and overt at the same time. It toys with our emotions, it demands certain things, it, it, it's chronically dissatisfied, especially with what is right and what is holy and what is good and what is pure. It's constantly nagging at us like you're not getting enough, people aren't paying enough attention to you, and you deserve more than you're getting. And even as Christians, even if you're a mature believer, that attack never goes away. What happens with maturity is we just learn to recognize it and deal with it on the front end rather than waiting until it attacks us. Now, where there's pride, there's almost always spiritual stagnation, and vice versa. Where there's spiritual stagnation, there's almost always pride. Spiritual stagnation is when we are not growing more mature. We're stuck. We're in the world. We're just kind of staying where we are. And, and spiritual stagnation becomes dangerous because the longer we stay in it, the less it bothers us. It's like the frog in the kettle when you slowly heat up the water. He's thinking, hey, this is nice. I got some great water, and he's doing whatever frogs do when they take a bath. And then the water starts to heat up. This is nice. It's kind of like being on vacation. And it just gets warmer and warmer until he doesn't notice he's boiling. That's what happens spiritually when we become dull. We don't recognize it. We know something's a little off, but we'll deal with it later. It's summer. We got a lot of things on our plate. We're going to go on vacation. We'll get to it later. And slowly, like the frog in the kettle, it slowly starts to boil and boil. And we don't really notice it, and we're not really bothered by it. And we almost revel in the freedom of being able to call ourselves Christians and not be fruitful. That's what the Corinthians were doing. And you can study chapters 8 and 9 this week as he talks about this, that they had become carnal. They had become content in not progressing and they had started to enjoy the things of the world more than the things of God and they became spiritually stagnant. Now that all started by what was going on in their hearts and we want to read this in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. If you're already there, we're going to start in verse 1 and read about 14 verses here. He says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you're still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. 
So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which is given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another's building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And what we need to establish at the start, and let's kind of take apart the passage and interact and write some notes down this morning because it's easy in June when it's kind of hot and muggy to just kind of sit and, and fade out, all right? So let's deal with the text and let's interact with it. In verse 1, he calls the believers brethren. And we see later that he refers to them about being in Christ Jesus. So what we know is that despite this church being carnal, despite them struggling with pride and with spiritual stagnation, that they were believers. So this was a church of Jesus Christ. This was a church filled with people who had confessed Christ, who said they were trusting in Christ, and yet weren't living for Christ and weren't living under the control of the Holy Spirit. Now that's important that we understand that because of what he says next. He speaks in almost a, almost a parent-like tone. Parents, you know that tone we get when we really want to get it across to the kids and they're rolling their eyes? I know that doesn't happen to you, but it happens to me. So we speak in that parent tone, and he says here, you Corinthians can't even digest the milk. In other words, I'm still having to feed you as babies, and the reason for this is in verse 3, and this is a very important reason, it's because you're fleshly. Now, as I studied that, and as I started to process that in my mind, and the Holy Spirit was speaking to me, the first question that immediately came to me was, how fleshly is my life? Because Paul's writing to a believer, he's not writing to somebody that doesn't know Christ, somebody that has rejected Christ, somebody that's cursed Christ. He's writing to people that said, at one point, I trust you, Jesus, for my salvation. I ask you to cleanse me from sin and to come into my life as my Savior and Lord. These are believers. And he's saying, your problem is, you are still fleshly. So how fleshly is your life this morning? Not just areas of your life, not just, well, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. Because it's too easy to marginalize that and to say, well, it's just, I'm, I'm just struggling with lust or I'm struggling with pride or I'm struggling with materialism or I'm struggling with laziness. And that's just kind of one thing and I'll deal with it. It's too easy to kind of categorize those as just areas that need more correction and discipline and change but it doesn't have an effect on everything else. But that's a lie from the enemy. Because any time there's flesh that's taking control, it spreads and controls everything. So we can't just say, well, Paul, I'm struggling with pornography, um, but, but you know, if I could get that under control, everything would be right. No, because that's affecting your mind, it's affecting your heart, it's what you see, it's what you carry with you, and I guarantee you now, that's infecting every other area of your life in some way. So how fleshly are we? 
Whenever there's any element of flesh, it affects everything else in our lives, and it starts to impact our spiritual health. Let me give you an analogy of this that's, that's about myself so I can talk about it. All my life I've struggled with weight. Even in college, when I was lean, and I look at pictures, and, and actually Annie put on one of my college sweatshirts the other day, and I said, I used to wear that, and she looked at me like, you are from Mars, there's no way you ever wore that. I said, no, I wore that in college. I said, that's how small I was. And at the time, I even thought, I'm a little bit overweight compared to my friends. Well, all my life, I've struggled with that until about five years ago, I lost over 60 pounds, which was wonderful. I felt great. I felt good. I felt confident. I felt younger. My clothes fit better. I actually enjoyed going in the closet and saying, what am I going to wear today? Versus, I don't like any of this. Maybe I can wear a a parka, even though it's 70. I like winter because you can kind of bundle up, right? Well, I noticed after I lost all that weight five years ago that my body started to feel better. I've got very bad knees from playing sports in college and high school. I've got a very bad ankle that I tore up playing tennis in college. And I herniated some discs in my back about 20 years ago. So I got some things that as I've had extra weight, I have felt be more painful. But when I lost the weight, all of a sudden, they didn't hurt as much. Well, now the stress over the last four years and just not eating right, not exercising, not maintaining what I was doing, I've gained some of the weight back. And the thing I've noticed the most is that my joints are starting to hurt more again. And my body doesn't feel good. And I'm not as as emotionally content. And I know I'm more at risk as I get older of of heart disease and of, of health problems. Now, why do I tell you that about myself? I tell you that because this is not just a physical principle, this is a spiritual principle. And it goes back to verse 3, where there's too much flesh, really where there's any flesh, it impacts our spiritual health. And we can't just say, well, I'm managing it, it's not that big a deal, what's an extra 15 pounds? I mean, I've earned it, I I can allow that in my life. No, the, the problem is, like the Corinthians, when we have extra flesh, speaking spiritually now, when we have extra flesh, it adversely impacts us. And they were to the point that when the Apostle Paul, of all people, was teaching them, they couldn't receive it. And he says there's jealousy, there's fighting, and there's division. Pride always affects relationships. And he says your perspective is limited. You can't have discernment. You're more worried about your relationships with each other than your relationship with Christ. And he's basically saying to them, this is not why Christ died and rose again. This is not why Christ did what he did. Ephesians 2 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to live righteously. Romans says, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away, all things become new. In other words, when Christ saved us, he created a new person. It's called being, we used to say in the 70s, right? Being born again. In other words, there's a rebirth. He says this to Nicodemus in John 3. And Nicodemus says, what, I have to climb back in my mother's womb? He says, no, no, no. 
It's a new spiritual creation. You are somebody different than you were before. The old man is gone. It's passed away. It's not just forgiven, it's replaced. So you now are a new creation in Christ, and that new creation is marked by purity. Now here's why Christ created us as a new creation. He says, the whole reason I did it is so that you will live righteously. That you will be conformed to Christ. That every day you will advance in righteousness and become more like Him. That's not a pipe dream. It's not some kind of unrealistic goal for missionaries and pastors and apostles. It is the everyday expectation that the Lord has for every single person that confesses the name of Christ. And He says, I fully equipped you to do it. So we can't say, well, I didn't go to seminary and I've only been saved a short time or I've been saved a really, really long time or I was raised Catholic or I was raised Lutheran or I don't know the hymns or I don't know my body. No, no, there's, there's, forgive me, there's no excuse. You're a new creation in Christ. You're fully equipped. You have His Holy Spirit. You have all the resources. And God says, now, why did I do this? So you'll live righteously. Now let's draw it into some application right here in the middle and and ask three questions, all right? Let me ask you, well, it's actually going to be more, but three primary questions. Question number one, how aggressively and effectively are you utilizing the resources the Lord has given you to build yourself up spiritually? How aggressively and effectively are you using the resources that God has given you to build yourself up spiritually? Is it not just a priority to live righteously? Is it the only priority? Because if it's not the only priority, it will get marginalized. So, God's given us resources. He's given us the Word. He's given us prayer. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the body. He's given us assignment. All these resources that He has, praise music, opportunities to exalt Him, are we using those effectively and aggressively, or are they just kind of off to the side? Second, how natural is it to live that way? Do you see it as a desirable lifestyle, or is there still latitude so the old self can have some room? Are you aggressively trying to eradicate that influence of the old self, or are you giving it some space and then trying to be spiritual at the same time? Because it doesn't work. And then the third question is, and this goes even beyond what's logical and natural, this is an issue of the heart. And here's the real question. How much do you love to be holy? Now let that settle in for a second because it's an important question. How much do you love to be holy? Is it your passion? Does it, when you wake up in the morning, you say, I can't wait to serve the Lord today. I can't wait to see what God has in store. This is going to drive my thoughts, and my actions because I love to please the Lord. And I'm going as his ambassador, his representative today. I'm going out into the world and I'm going to stand for him. And I'm going to know people are going to criticize me and they're going to think I'm foolish to trust in Christ. And they may even curse my name and think I'm ignorant. Doesn't matter. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. And I want to serve the Lord today. Is that your heart? Not being critical. I'm not being judgmental. This is applying to me too. Is that the attitude in our heart? Because the Bible says you were recreated to be righteous. You were recreated to live for Him. That's your singular purpose as a child of God. 
If you claim his blood as your salvation and you say, I'm so glad I'm secure and I'm going to heaven and it's wonderful that God saved you. Listen, God has recreated you this week to be holy. No latitude, no equivocation, no freedom not to. He has created you to be holy. And you know what? The more we're like Christ, the less we want of the old. The more we're like Christ, the less we want that old self to be around. The less we argue, well, the Bible says I have liberty to do whatever I want. God knows my heart, and He forgives me, and I can do whatever. No, no. The, the more holy you get, the more you don't want to have that argument. I don't want the old self to influence me. I've been saved 40 years this week. I don't want the old self anymore. I'm tired of it. Four decades of fighting it. I'm sick of it. It needs to be done. There needs to be no more. We need to have no tolerance for it. And as we mature in our faith, we are going to move toward the spiritual nature that God has provided for us. And we're going to start to build ourselves up. Let me give you an illustration of this. Paul Nunn and I were talking yesterday about, um, he went down to Legoland down in Schaumburg, and he went there with his family, and they had a great day, and he was talking to a guy who had built many of the complex models. I don't know if you guys have ever been down there. They built the whole, like the whole skyline of Chicago. It's unbelievable. And they've built all these incredible creations just all out of Legos, and you go, how in the world did they figure that out? Well, he got talking to this guy who set out to be what they call a master builder. And this guy, Alexander, had entered a contest with other people where they put you in a room and they basically say, create something. No template, no instructions. They just give you a big pile of Legos and say, go at it. Now, what made it easier for him is that by the time he got to that room, he had spent a couple decades building, creating, getting familiar with it, knowing depth perception, knowing uh, how to, to structure it, knowing scale, knowing the number of bricks that it takes to get into a certain place. So by the time he sat down, it was ingrained in him. And one of the rules they have at, at Lego, and this is not a promotion for them, I'm just telling you the story, is that you follow the instructions the first time you build a kit, and then you immediately break it apart and do it from memory. Not me, man. I'm keeping my, keeping my instructions. I have enough time doing it the first time. But that's the way you learn. That's the way you learn to build. You don't just follow step one, red brick, blue brick. You, you, you build it, you look at it, you take it apart, and then you do it from memory. Why? Because as you're building it, your brain is not only processing this is what it's going to look like, but your heart is getting engaged. And it becomes more than just information. It then becomes a passion. It becomes how you think. It becomes normal and natural. Why do I tell you that? Look back at verse 10. Paul says, I've been functioning toward you, Corinth, as a master builder. I've been called by the grace of God to this assignment. I've served you with the perspective of carefully building on the foundation that Christ has laid. Now, my role to you in Corinth has been to lay foundation, and clearly you need it. 
There are many times, and this is part of the, uh, the role that Paul had as the minister to the Gentiles, where he would go into a strange situation where nobody knew the Lord, and he would present the gospel and lay the foundation of theology, and people would come to Christ, and then he'd teach them and develop them. Paul's work many times was on the groundwork, and then he would leave and go to the next town, and somebody like Apollos or Barnabas or Epaphras or, or Silas would come in, or Timothy, and they would teach, and then they'd train the people and do the work of discipleship and develop the church and build up the church physically and spiritually. So Paul says, my role sometimes as the master builder is to lay the foundation. Other times I've come in after somebody's already done that, and I take the other role, and I build you up and strengthen you. But there's one clear truth that nobody can miss, and he says this in verse 10. He says there's only one foundation, and the foundation is Jesus Christ. When we look at alternatives, instead of Christ, we will always fail. So he says we have to be careful about how we build on that foundation. Now he's talking primarily about the focus of the ministry, but there's also a personal aspect to it that precedes that. In verse 12, he warns against building on top of the foundation that is Christ with, with other inferior materials, and he names six. Gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, and straw. He says if we do that, our actions will become evident. Now, how do we understand that? How do we apply that? Let's try to draw this to conclusion. As students of the Bible, we know to ask questions of the text. Who, what, where, when, and why? We wait for how to interpretation. So, who, what, where, when, and how? So, let's ask this question of the text. Who is supposed to build? Us. We're supposed to build ourselves up in the Lord, and we're supposed to build each other up as part of our ministry. So, the who is us. The what, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to become mature in Christ and become like Him. Alright, simple. Where and when do we do this? We do this wherever we are, and we do this at all times. So who does the building? We do. Where do we do the building? What are we supposed to build? We're supposed to build ourselves in Christ. We're supposed to build each other up in Christ. When do we do it? Anytime. Where do we do it? Wherever we are. Now that leaves us with why. Why do we build on Christ alone? Why is Jesus Christ the only foundation? Why does the Holy Spirit list alternatives that we tend to choose instead of building on Christ? The word is clear here that we're refined in this process, that things are tested by fire, that the quality of what we're doing, the quality of our actions will be tested and that anything that is not centered on Christ will be burned up. So what is he saying here? He's really referring to the time when we will stand before the Lord as believers. This is not about uh, the great white throne judgment. This is not everybody comes unsaved and saved and gives account of their lives and whether they trusted Christ. He's talking now about the evaluation of us as believers. All right, you're in heaven. Let's evaluate how you lived as a believer. That's verses 12 to 14 here. And he says, God's going to look at our lives and he's going to say anything that was built that was not centered on honoring Jesus Christ is worthless. Anything that is not for the purpose of proclaiming, exalting, honoring, yielding, trusting in Jesus Christ is going to be burned up 
what a waste it will be to stand in heaven and watch all the things that we have done that the world values or that we've determined are important go up in flames. And only what was selfless and sacrificial and holy and brought joy to the Lord and brought people to know and love Him will be left. Now he lists here six inferior materials. And each one is listed by design. And each one has a practical correlation to our everyday life. And it has a spiritual correlation to us as believers. So I want to just take a couple minutes as we conclude to, to go through these. Because we need to know what to avoid. We need to know what to deprioritize. Because these are the things that the world is going to tell us are important and appeal to us. And we need to recognize that none of these has value to the Lord. You say gold, which is the first one, which we'll study in a second. Well, gold has great value. My wedding ring's made of gold. My cross around my neck is made of gold. People want gold. Well, you know what? That's the paving stones of heaven. God walks on gold. Gold doesn't matter to him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns everything. He doesn't care about gold. And yet, think about how much we would value gold. So let's walk through these very quickly, a couple minutes each, and we'll pray about what God cares about versus what the world tells us is important. All right? Why don't these materials work? What do they represent? Gold, first of all. Gold seems like the most valuable. There's a gold standard in our culture. Every day we see the price of gold, and it's what, if the economy of all the nations continues to collapse as we know it will scripturally, What's going to be left? Well, gold will be left. So now you have 10,000 companies on TV and the radio saying, we buy gold, we sell gold, you need to have gold, the economy is going to collapse, have gold in your house. So everybody's like, well, we need to get gold. Well, here's how God views gold. He says in 1 Peter 1.7, the testing of your faith as believers is more precious than gold. You couldn't pay me enough to take my wedding ring from me. This is a representation, 25 years this week, that I've been married to my wife. This is very valuable to me. It's made of gold. But God says, it really doesn't matter to me. I'm glad you're married. I'm glad you wear it. But, but the actual metal, I don't care about. Because what I care about more is that your faith is tested so you're like me. That's way more precious to me. Do you ever think about when Jesus went around that the people he was most amazed and impressed by were not the wealthy people, wasn't the popular people, wasn't the politicians, wasn't the athletes, wasn't the people that made a show of themselves. It was the people who had great faith. A couple times it says, and Jesus looked at the person and he was astonished by their faith. Can you imagine astonishing God with the level of your faith? I don't even know how that works theologically, but just go with it, right? Then he goes, are you kidding me? Do you, do you see how that person's trusting me? Jesus would run into people and they would say, like, like Jairus, you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word. I know you're a man of authority. Look, I'm a Roman leader. I know what it's like to give orders. And I know when I give orders, my troops do it. So I'm telling you, I recognize that you're a man of great authority. You're in heaven. So Jesus, say the word and my daughter will be healed. And Jesus looks at him and says, I've never seen faith like yours. You know what pleases God? Having faith like that. I don't know about you, but I want to astonish 
the Lord with my faith. Because he says, listen, when your faith is tested and tried and proven like that, that is so much more precious to me than gold. I'm not giving you the test to aggravate you and annoy you. I'm giving you the test of your faith right now. Louis and Jean have a test of their faith. Why? Because God values their faith and He wants to see their faith go through the roof because that's precious to Him. If they back off, He's disappointed. But if they ramp up their faith now, God says, look at them. Look at their faith. Look at what they're doing. This is what pleases me. So if your faith is not being tested on a regular basis, it either means your faith is not mature enough to be tested or that the test is coming. But God will test our faith. And the goal is that we would come out of it bringing praise and honor to Christ. Second material is silver. Silver represents abundance in our culture. In the negative, silver signifies our priority on materialism. The lie of our culture that the more you have, the better. That that having equals contentment, when in fact it's just the opposite. Now in Scripture, silver represents endurance. Where we trust in the abundance of God's sufficiency, even when the help seems lean. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, there's a crown of righteousness waiting for believers who endure by faith and fight the good fight no matter how the battle is raging around us. Silver is refined in fire. Fire removes the impurities. The dross or the impurity comes to the top and the refiner scrapes it off and then he heats it some more and the dross comes up and he scrapes it off some more. And the goal of the refining process, and you've heard this before, is that the refiner can see his reflection. So while the world says, gather, hold, take, have what you want, be materialistic, get all you can, and just enjoy it, because the more you have, the more you're going to be content. The Bible says, no, it's the scraping away of things that will make us content. And then there's the other substance that's good, which is precious stones. Precious stones are formed over time under great pressure. And and that's often how we view serving the Lord. Now listen, this is a mindset that we all fall into. I fall into it in ministry. I fall into it after four decades of being a believer. That sometimes we view walking with the Lord as kind of an almost next to impossible assignment. Lord, I keep getting my limits pushed. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm tired. People are doing this. People are doing that. I I don't see fruit coming out of what I'm doing. And I'm so weary. And where are you? Like David says in many of the Psalms, Lord, where are you? I'm looking for your help. I don't hear from you. We all get in that place. But think about the love and goodness of God just for a minute. I know it's warm in here. I know it's muggy. I know you're hungry. I know you got other things. Think just for a minute. Just focus your mind right now on the love and goodness of God. He doesn't make us figure out our life plan because He's already got it planned out. He gives us gifts. He provides for us. He takes care of us. He knows what tomorrow is going to hold. He orders our steps. So if we stay in the center of His will and if we trust Him, He will take care of us. He gives us over a thousand promises in Scripture that He says these are sure. 
he says, if you are faithful, I will reward you. Now that doesn't sound so impossible, does it? That doesn't sound like, well, I can't make it till tomorrow because life is overwhelming and there's too much. And God, I just don't say, no, God is faithful. Somebody say amen to that. God is faithful. God is good. God knows exactly what's going on with him. He was not surprised by that Monday. He knows every hair on her head. He knows the birds that are out there. He knows how to take care of us and provide for us. He's not unaware. He's not on vacation, as Elijah just said to the prophets of Baal. Where's your God? Is he on vacation? Is he in the bathroom? Where is he? Why is he not answering you? And as soon as Elijah prays, what happens? Fire from heaven. God is faithful. He has his hand on us. And the precious stones that should come out of our life are the fruit of constantly trusting him and constantly serving him. He says the precious stones are formed under pressure. And you need that pressure so you'll become like me. Now look at the last three real quick. I've got to conclude. Contrast that in verse 12 to wood. Wood isn't as valuable as gold. If somebody handed you a pound of gold or a pound of wood, which would you take? You're running to the bank as fast as you can with a pound of gold. Wood is not as valuable, but it has everyday use. We build houses. We make paper. We build a pulpit. Or, 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 or we do ever, whatever. The, the Bible says about a house that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it, which shows that the Lord must always be at the center of our lives. When it's used in corrupt purposes, like it was in the Old Testament, they made idols out of wood. They, they gave the idol that they had just crafted credit for helping them over the God that had clearly helped them. So what does wood represent? He says, don't put on the foundation of Christ with wood, because wood represents our clever attempts to replace the Lord with an inferior imposter, and then to somehow rationalize that that's better than trusting in the Lord. When we serve that God, when we do that, the Lord takes that wood and he throws it in the fire and he burns it up because it dishonors him. And then there's hay, which is a common grain that's fed to animals but only doesn't have any value. What does hay represent? I believe it represents the mundane. The life that we have to live in the routine that eats so much of our time instead of being with the Lord and instead of serving the Lord. But, but you know, we got 168 hours this week. We choose how we spend those. How many times do I utter in a week, I'm so busy. Oh, I'm just, man, my schedule is slammed right now. I just, I, I, I don't know where to find time. Well, you know what? Those are choices we make. There are things that are default. Going to work, eating, sleeping. But there's a lot of extracurricular hours in there. How do we spend them? How do we use them? The Lord says, when you use those for preoccupations that don't bring me any glory, eventually, it may work now, but I'm going to burn them up because they have no eternal value. And that's very sobering when you think about how much time and money we spend on things that don't matter. He says, I care about things that profit your spiritual maturation and that make you holy. I care about you running the race hard. I care about you getting to the finish line and I will reward you for your diligence. Or you can spend time playing in the hay. 
But I only value one thing. And then we get to the last one, and that's straw. Straw is what's left over after the grain's been harvested. And spiritually, it represents useless things that we pursue that don't accomplish anything for God. I'm not talking about overt sin here. I'm talking about the things that are empty and worthless and waste our time and make us more like the world instead of standing against the world. You say, well, it doesn't sound like you have any fun. Well, it's not, it's not a matter of whether or not we have fun. It's a matter of whether that's our primary priority. Do we expect the Lord to reward things that don't honor Him? It's going to do no good to come to the throne and to say to God at the judgment, look, I got hands full of straw. Look at this, God. I have produced a lot of straw for you. And God will say, what do you have that's of eternal value? Remember when I was growing up, there was a plaque on my dad's desk. I've never forgotten. I thought of it last night late. It said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's true, isn't it? What are you and I building this week? What are we building in our lives? Are we even building at all? Or are we just kind of observing? The Bible says, build yourself up in the holy faith. The Bible says, build up one another in the Lord. Are you building, and are you building the right things? Are you building what is holy, or are you building what is fleshly? Those are not my distinctions, those are the Lord's distinctions. What are you building? Are you spending your time, and I'm saying this to myself, are you spending your time on inferior alternatives, or are you spending your time on what will please the Lord? Because that's what we're called to. Why did I save you? Why did I recreate you, believer? I recreated you so you will live righteously. That's what we're called to this week. Let's close our eyes. Let the Holy Spirit now just speak to your heart for a moment. whatever he's challenged you to this morning, whatever you've been building that is not honoring to him or is not making you more like him, it's not promoting holiness, don't spend any more time on it. Only what's done for Christ will last. He even says that in Scripture. All the other junk, I'm going to burn it up. But the things that are done for me, the things that are done to make you like me, the things that are done to proclaim me and honor me, those are the ones I'm going to hold on to. So you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to evaluate what are we doing that's building ourselves up and building others up in the faith. There may be some things that we need to eradicate things that we're still holding on to in the old self that, that are not helping. I want to encourage you just right now in the silence of this room to go before the Lord and to confess those things to Him and ask Him to remove them and remove the desire for them. 
the time is short. The Lord is on His way. How will He find us? Father, You have given us the foundation of Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing foundation that is. We praise You this morning for salvation, for forgiveness, for redemption, for the security of knowing that we will live forever with You because of Your grace and mercy. But Lord, it's not just about being saved and secure. Now the assignment is that we would walk in holiness and live righteously. And I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, and I pray it for myself this week, that we would live righteously, that holiness would mark our lives, that we would not waver, not retreat, not get distracted, not get discouraged, but that we would walk with you. And Lord, the impact that you can have out of our lives because of that will be profound. Lord, we need your help because we are fleshly. Even after decades of being saved, Lord, I'm fleshly. We ask you to constantly keep that conviction before us that we would put off the old and put on the new and walk in righteousness. Lord, help us this week. We know you will. We know you're sufficient. We know your spirit is able and willing. Now make our hearts soft and sensitive before you that we would walk in righteousness every day of our life. And Lord, we pray you'd use us this week in powerful ways to influence people for Christ and to build each other up in our faith. We thank you, Lord, for this word you've given us this morning. Now we pray it would stay in our hearts and it would influence how we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.